0: you know, I don't know if we have a great flow for this. Sometimes stuff just shows up. Sometimes there's paperwork with it. Sometimes they're not. We open it. We try to figure out what it is. And and that kind of opens up a conversation to, to start tying that real world of, of what this whole return disposition process looks like, what we need to do with the inventory. Are we going to rework it? Are we going to scrap it? Can we resell it?
1: Here is your host, Sam Gupta.
2: Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the WVS Podcast. I'm Sam Gupta, your host and principal consultant at independent ERP and digital transformation consulting firm Elevate IQ. Most companies would rather give a product for free than worry about reverse logistics, especially when the cost of the supply chain may be higher than the product itself. By the way, reverse logistics is not as simple as printing a shipping label and sending it to your customer. It could include getting a product to your facility and then recycling it or sending it to the vendor for repair. Managing these transactions could be even more difficult when multiple systems might be involved in your architecture. So what are the best practices of reverse logistics? In today's episode, we invited a panel of cross-functional experts for a live interview on LinkedIn who brings significant expertise to discuss reverse logistics best practices. We discussed the nuances and best practices of reverse logistics processes and how they might vary in different industries. Finally, we discussed the overlap and boundaries of reverse logistics processes across systems and functions. With that, let's get to the conversation. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's show. And if you're joining for the first time, this is part of our digital transformation series for which we meet every Thursday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern. We pick one topic related to digital uh, transformation, and we always have an uh, expert panel. And for today, we are going to be discussing a very interesting topic. It's uh, Reverse logistics, and a lot of people might feel that this could get really deep overall from the topic perspective. The others might think that, you know, what are you going to talk for an hour on this topic? So we'll find out how deep it could get. On that note, first, we are going to start with everybody's intros. If you don't know me, I am your host, uh, Sam Gupta, principal at Elevate IQ. Elevate IQ is the independent ERP and digital uh, transformation consulting firm. On that note, I am going to move to Chris for is intro.
3: Thanks, Sam. I'm Chris Giardini, the CEO and owner of Turnkey Technologies. We're a 28-year-old Microsoft Dynamics ERP practice. A little logistics, great topic. I look forward to the conversation with Okay, amazing. Thank you so much for
2: being here, Chris. Tom, can I ask you to introduce yourself next?
4: Yes, thanks, Sam. Uh, Tom Rodden. I am a long-time IT manager and leader, uh, most recently CIO at Marion Medical Systems, and currently uh, serving as a consultant uh, on ERP program. Happy to be here.
2: Amazing. Thank you so much for being here, Tom. Uh, Dave, can I ask you to introduce yourself next?
0: Absolutely. Um, thanks for having me today, Sam. I'm Dave Dozer, the president of Blaze IT. Um, we're an Acumatica reseller focusing on um, manufacturing, distribution type of companies. Um, really looking forward to today's topic. It'll it'll definitely be a, a fun and interesting one.
2: Okay, amazing. Thank you so much for being here, Dave. And if you're in the audience and joining for the first time, make sure you guys post your questions and comments. We typically try to cover them during the show. If you're an of time, then our panelists are going to make sure that you receive your answers. On that note, I am going to start. With the first question with with Chris, and Chris, do you want to set the stage overall in terms of what is reverse logistics, you know, how many different touch points are going to be there in the process, how the customer journey is going to be uh, overall when we think about the process? So do you want to start?
3: Chris? Sure. I went out and Googled the topic about three minutes ago, so I'm really ready to talk about it. But frankly, um, reverse logistics, it covers a lot of aspects, and most people think it's just returns. And so, reverse logistics, if you think about the, the most common case, is right, it's a customer return. Where does it originate? How do we manage it? How do we process it? Where do they send to the product? Does it come back to me? Does it go back to the manufacturer? It repaired? Does it get back to stock, does it get sold again? And so as I as I touch through those touch points, again, everything from authorizing this return transaction to tracking the return. And again, even when you authorize it, where does it go? Do we know that it was a drop ship? Do I send it back to the vendor? So there could be complexity even in the ship to location of again, does it go back to a distribution center and then again it's dispositioning if it comes back to me I have to disposition that return I have to look at quality I look at usability is it damaged is it under warranty does it go to the vendor do I fix it and then sell it do I again a lot of complexities there but it's not just returns so if you think about reverse logistics and you know I've got I've got a customer a little customer that has 1200 truck parts stores hmm. and so they're a massive billion dollar company and they 1,200 stores. So if you think about truck parts and you think about reverse logistics, what's that got to do with truck parts? Well, core exchanges is a perfect example of a reverse challenge, meaning normally you buy something, I sell it to you. You're done. Uh, okay. Well, if you don't want it or it's broke, you return it. But in this context, I'm going to give you a pair of new brakes for your truck. But guess what? I expect a core exchange in return. So there's another example of a reverse logistics process where, you know, I'm tracking now and typical inventory systems aren't tracking core exchanges. You're like, okay, but again, I sold you a new pair of brakes for $1,000. That assumes that I'm going to get the $500 core back. Tracking cores, aging cores, think about the receivables process on outstanding core exchanges. It could be millions and millions of dollars. In a billion-dollar company, could be $10 million of these products that you're expecting to come back in. So the tracking and traceability, it's not a standard ERP function if you look at core exchanges because there's a cost factor, and then guess what happens? Then it comes in, again, it's a whole dispositioning process, again, with a core exchange. What happens to it? Is it usable? Can I rebuild it? What happens if I rebuild it, work order, rework, back into stock? Big circle loop, right? So there's another example of a reverse logistics, core exchanges. And in in this particular context, you add a lot of augmentation to systems to automate that so you're not manually tracking. And it's money. This is all balance sheet stuff that you really are due. And again, what happens if they don't send it back? you got to turn around and invoice them. Oh, I forgot about that. So I either get it, I invoice them, but then there's a whole backside process. Other examples, uh, pallets. Well, a lot of times people sell the pallets and they never ask for them back. Okay, well, maybe... Your relationship is you're moving so much product that you want the pallets back so you can move more product. So pallets could be another example of logistics. How do you track them? How do you collect them? Where are they staged? What else? Uh, oversupply. So there's another one. That's another one example where. Uh, and again, as you look at how do you handle this merchandise is all part of that process. And you want to be thin. You want to be touchless as much as possible. But the tracking and the traceability because it's big dollars. And I think the the reality is if we're not managing this merchandise, these materials that are going somewhere, whether it's back to the vendor, back to me, and I'm trying to resell it. I certainly don't want to scrap it because that's expense. A lot of a lot of dollars in play there. So again, those are some examples. But uh, again, the back-end systems, once it hits the dock, can be very complex as well. Like I said, as we talk about am I sending it back to the vendor, am I dealing with warranties? Am I doing rework? Am I doing repairs? Again, a whole lot of processes for work order, repair, refurb, rebuild back to stock, etc. I'll pause there. So
2: So very interesting details there and very interesting layers. And I was definitely not thinking about the complexity when you spoke about the core exchange. And probably I want some more uh, details there in terms of how that that would work in the system. Uh, That's number one. And the pallets is the second one that you mentioned, which is very interesting layer as well, because the kind of, you know, customers that we have dealt with, not everybody sort of tracks pallets in the system. It's going to be there, but, you know, it's just a pallet and, you know, they are probably not going to be part of the system. So now when you are going to be getting back, then obviously you have to scan something unless that's a manual process. So how is this interaction going to be more from the system perspective, both the core exchanges as well as the
3: pallets? Sure. let If we just talk about core exchanges, you're thinking, well, what's that transaction look like? Is it a sales order return that's sitting out there that's unfulfilled? So, in essence, a lot of times one of the processes there's a, a few different paths depending on the company that they take is I could invoice you for the core, which means I sold you the new set of breaks for a thousand dollars and then you got an invoice for the core exchange. Oh, okay, well, then you got an r m a number for the core exchange, which means if you don't return it, i'm invoicing you but again, what am I tracking I'm tracking a receivables where i'm now I'm looking at a special type of invoice because What's it telling me? It's, it's almost like a return. I'm expecting that product back in the door. But there's a, a, trans, a couple different transactions you can track core exchanges on. But a return document, an RMA document is one because what you would do is I shipped you the new breaks. I immediately create an RMA that's expecting an inbound shipment. So if you've got an RMA or return management system that tracks open RMAs, it's a different type of RMA, right? It's not, it's not a return for credit. It's not a return for stock. It's a return core that triggers a work order process. So that's typically where I see the the core exchange. But again, the facilitation of the auto creation of the two transactions is, is part of the artwork in there. On pallets, um, again, I think that, you know, a lot of times those are managed off book. But depending on your volume, it's a lot of money. And wood's expensive. So If you think about that and even the pallet process, as you look at tracking pallets that are out at each of your customers, for example, and again, this may not be I'm going to California to bring them back to Jersey type of stuff. But if you think about local regional customers where we're shipping a lot of volume and we're a big supplier, we're tracking the number of pallets in our systems at that customer's job site. And when do I send a truck? when I got a full load, for example. So there's there's some mechanics there. And a lot of times, you know, is the pallet coming out? Is it is it tracked against the customer and some analytics where we know, well, how many do I have? And I'm bringing it back into stock. And one of the things about pallets is people will build them in a manufacturing. They'll build them in as a, as a component, a fraction of a pallet that gets consumed. So even if we're managing pallet inventory, it's the same type of thing. Am I consuming it, but am I tracking that little attribute? It's a two transaction. Again, one that takes it out, but another one that's tracking, where's it at? And how many are at that site now before I bring them back in and bring them back into my system? Whether you cost them or sell them out the door, you're just tracking them as units. A couple of different scenarios there. And again, smaller organizations, some people sell pallets and they never go back and they just buy more. Again, if they're costing it correctly, but as you think about the price of your product, a lot of people don't want to be buying the pallets. They'd rather come back and come get them. Come get them. Keep my product pricing cheap. So a couple of different scenarios, but again, as you look at the matching transactions, so you're not manually doing things off book. That's the key. okay.
2: Very interesting details there. So, Tom, I'm actually, uh, you know, gonna come to you, and I don't know if you're gonna have anything to add there based on the scenarios that uh, Chris has mentioned already. But one of the questions that are that is probably going to be built up of what he has already pointed out overall in terms of the the pellets, and I think we are probably going to be discussing pellets a lot now, Uh, (laughs) since this is a really good setup, to be honest, okay? So from my experience, if if you look at the pellets, and it could be sometimes all over the place. So one scenario could be pellets are never tracked in the system. The second scenario could be they are tracked more as the license plate because you have the construction, the assembly, the disassembly of the pellets. But let's say if you are going to be selling the pellets the way Chris has described, uh, you know, then that's license plate. I don't know if you can really sell, to be honest, because they are supposed to be more of the internal numbers. So yeah, so number one, if you want to touch anything related to reverse logistics, overall in terms of setup and then build up on whatever Chris has already pointed out and 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 pallets. Um, over to you. Yeah, yeah, no,
4: I um, yeah, I have a few thoughts, and uh, I have some personal direct experience on the pallet subject that I did not think would be. Uh, a significant input for our conversation today, but i can I can share some of that too. Um, what one of the things that I think about, though, when it comes to reverse logistics first, is the financial impact. And that that really ought to be first and foremost in one's mind as you define your approach and your policy uh, for handling reverse logistics or returns. but not, as as Chris said, not just returns in the conventional sense that we think about it. You know, there there is a, uh, a a great opportunity to minimize the cost, or even in some cases, turn it a little bit more into a you know a, a secondary profit center in your operations. Um, if you are reselling repaired equipment, or or if you are cannibalizing parts. Um, and extracting value from returned items in order to uh, avoid purchasing uh, additional components that go into maybe a, a, a new product um, that you that you have in your manufacturing operation. So there's there's a lot of questions that uh, that need to be addressed. I mean, is it even worth physically receiving back uh, a product? Could the transportation and handling uh, costs outweigh the value of bringing a product back into your logistics uh, operations. Um, so all of these calculations and need to be thought through. Um, what staffing do you need to handle these reverse logistics? Uh, what does a repair or refurbishment or um, uh, triage cannibalization process look like and cost? How much value do you really extract? Um, you know, at what price point can you really resell some of this stuff? How much do you probably need to discount it? Um, and so on. And I think once you've modeled some of that, you can figure out, okay, this is how I want to proceed with reverse logistics for my business. Um, now, um, there are all kinds of potential gotchas and risks. Um, you know, one of the things that, um, I'm aware of in the retail industry is just how, uh. Customers will order three, four items, uh, four dresses, four pairs of shoes, whatever it is, um, when they really only want and need one. Uh, but there is a generous return policy by the the company they're buying from, and they'll they'll take the, the the shoes or the clothes that best fit or that match whatever other items they have in their wardrobe best, and the others get returned. And and you really also need to understand what is the uh, Level of returns in your industry or in your sector. Um, in, in a lot of the clothing and retail business, I hear it's 30%. Uh, Chris mentioned automotive parts and I've, I've read it's, you know, upwards of 20% um, in the, in the parts, uh, automotive parts world in electronics, um, more like probably 10%. But you, again, you go back to the financial point, you need to model this in. How are you going to handle these levels of returns that are typical in your world, in your industry. Um, And then you can start to think about, okay, here's how I'm going to set up my operations. Here's how I'm going to define my policy. Here's how we're going to handle the reverse logistics issue or challenge. Um, When it comes to to pallets, I worked for a number of years at GE, specifically GE Lighting. um, And lighting products um, are shipped from the GE manufacturing and distribution operations to retailers um, around the country and around the world. Um, And uh, for a number of years, I was in the UK uh, running a major distribution facility and we were shipping 30, 40 truckloads around uh, Northern Europe um, each day. Um, And so it was hundreds and hundreds of pallets, you know, 30 to 40 per trailer uh, that were being shipped out, so do the math, I don't know, um, and, uh, and there was a time early on when people were not, my operations and others in our network, were not really tracking pallets. Um, customers are either not returning them or they were returning damaged pallets, um, different pallets than we had shipped to them, lesser quality pallets, and uh, these pallets were not cheap. Uh, they were not real expensive but the cost would definitely add up Um, and so we had to begin tracking that we were not tracking it by product but we were tracking it by shipment Um, so we were not putting in value of uh, inventory value against it Um, it was more of an expense item we would buy pallets but then we would track if we were uh, getting the returned pallets After a shipment was dropped off, the the expectation was we were picking up pallets from that site, uh, hopefully in equal number. But um, again, we track it. Um, And so that was a that was a significant um, uh, improvement in our cost management. Uh, But we still had just like product returns. We still had pallets that were damaged and and they were they were ones we'd shipped out. And for whatever reason, they got damaged. Uh, they were returned and we had to engage a pallet repair, uh, team, um, a third party. And, um, and Chris mentioned this. I mean, one of the things that, um, I, I, I put a little post out about this, this event and, you know, to my network uh, yesterday talking about reverse logistics. And, and one of the points that I made in my, in my message was people tend to think of reverse as the mirror image of the outbound process but it can be very different Um, and uh, it can involve other parties, 3PLs that weren't part of the outbound process. Um, You know, the idea of just bringing it back, as Chris was saying, you know, having to refurbish or repair um, packaging or the product itself, all of these things um, maybe storing it in a different place. You know, you're, you're kind of quarantining these return products um, because you can't really sell them as new anymore in many cases, right? Um, The whole, the whole, way that they're handled, managed, um, very different. And, uh, and frankly, you know, the, the cost of gatekeeping. um, This is certainly one of the issues in reverse logistics that you need to be aware of. Uh, You're not really checking what comes in from the factory to your distribution center, right? Um, Other than maybe doing a quick count, you know, quick quality check, typically, um, if that. You're bringing in, putting it away, and eventually, when an order comes in, if it's make to make to stock, you're you're shipping, um, picking and shipping. But when it's something that's coming back from the customer, uh, again, maybe the customer's always right, but the customer might make a mistake. They might ship you back an empty box. They might put something that's not what you sent to them in the box. Um, It might be um, obsolete, uh, past its return by date, um, if you have a policy around that, um, and so on and so forth. So uh, unlike the receiving process from manufacturing, the receiving process for returns really does require a gatekeeper, someone who is checking that what was sent back on the RMA or what was supposed to be sent back on the RMA is really what we received. Um, and then the whole question of, well, then you need to build that Process into your business now. Uh, it's it's like the goods issue of a shipment. Now I have to not only confirm receipt, but I have to confirm the uh, clearance of the receipt, the confirmation that it is what it was supposed to be. Maybe before I trigger the credit, or before I trigger a replacement uh, shipment for that customer. Um, and so, uh, and this again leads to other complexities like. Have you staffed that gatekeeper function adequately? Uh, I was in some businesses um, as a consultant where that was really uh, understaffed uh, and considered just a headache and overhead. And the returns and the, the, the review and clearance of those returns piled up to the point where customers were getting very irate about, hey, my credit hasn't come through. Hey, my replacement hasn't been shipped. Hey, you know, what's going on? And the problem was that the receipt of the goods had had been done, but the clearance wasn't happening in a timely manner. And so the the triggering of reimbursement or replacement wasn't happening uh, quickly, and it was upsetting customers. So again, all of these things are elements that are very different from the outbound process that you need to be thinking through um, as you develop your reverse logistics processes. And then, you know, enable them uh, with technology.
2: Yeah, could not agree more. So some very interesting layers there. And uh, I completely agree that you need to plan a lot. You need to think about your costs as well. Yes, the customer is always right, but think about your financials as well. Uh, You know, don't overspend there. And I don't know if there are going to be any sort of best practices in terms of structuring your warehouse the way these inbound returns are going to be. So I don't know, Tom, if you have seen any sort of best practices in terms of separating the areas for outbound versus inbound my assumption is going to be probably they are going to be separate but the layer that i right. really want to touch in the conversation you can touch on this one as well obviously uh, but the real layer that i want to touch and i don't know if you are going to have any sort of uh, you know input on that or not uh, because that's slightly different industry uh, you know the example that you gave about the retail uh, and in the retail when you compare this with your lighting or truck Okay, these are very different industries. So in the retail industry, when we are talking about the dresses or shoes, the example that you gave in that the way your return process is going to be and on your uh, stat that you mentioned that, okay, there is going to be 30% return. So along with that, the another challenge that they have in the retail space is going to be the return is going to be related to either style or size and the style or size goes to the same store. You cannot go to another store because the way the whole merchandising process works is okay if you buy from this store i am curating this store uh, based on the customer data i have related to this store so only in this store i am probably going to keep a small size or medium size so if the returns are going to be all over the place that actually increases the amount of effort that you need to put in in restocking your goods because you know you are selling at store one but let's say if the return goes to your store too, then you have another problem there because you need to sort of readjust your styles. Mm-hmm. So uh, so it's not going to be as simple as, you know, selling your lighting where, you know, all of the writings are probably going to be similar. The break's probably going to be similar, but in the case of retail, you have added challenge. So I don't know if you're going to have any sort of thoughts there in terms of how you would approach, let's say if you are, um, you know, approaching the uh, return process for, for the retail industry. Tom, uh, that was... Well, um- um-
4: I, I would say that the bulk of my returns experience, at, as I kind of described briefly, was more B2B than B2C. So it was Walmart returning to GE. It was um, Fry's returning to Cisco. It was yep. you know those kinds of where there were significant volumes going out and um, maybe they were sitting for a while, you know, whatever the, you know, maybe they were. Uh, damaged in some way in 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 the shipping process to the retailers and the outlets uh, where end users and consumers would buy. But um, uh, I don't honestly and personally have as much direct experience in the B2C piece of returns. So not sure I can give you great thoughts on that.
2: Yeah. And we'll probably, you know, circle this with everybody and let's see what everybody has to say. And then we'll come back to you if you have anything mm-hmm, to add sure. there. Thank you so much, Tom, for that. Mm-hmm. So, Dave, uh, you know, uh, from your perspective, so we have many layers uh, that you can talk about. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks uh, to Chris for, for, you know, setting up the stage with, you know, pallets, uh, the retail planning. Uh, then what else do we have? Uh, we have a lot of different, uh, you know, best practices in the warehouse, the way you should be structuring your warehouse in terms of the the return process. So, yeah, pick, man, whatever you want to talk oh, man, about. i, uh, I, I get a, a,
0: a choose your own adventure one there. Exactly, right? Well, I, I think Chris and Tom both really did a great job of, of kind of covering the complexity and, and scope, really, of reverse logistics in, in general. And that's the thing. It is a very complex and deep issue and means a lot of different things. And and one thing I'll kind of focus on a, a little bit to try to you know take it in a, a unique direction here, too, is how, frankly, it's something that's very overlooked, weird. And and Tom, you touched on this a little bit with you know making sure you plan it and and understand exactly how your flow is going to look, and especially in kind of the small to mid-sized range of companies. It's, it's almost remarkable how it's almost sort of an, an afterthought a lot of times. You know, you, you go in and you start talking about, okay, well, what's your return process look like? And people kind of look at each other and say, oh, I, I don't know. Stuff shows up and, you know, we, we try to do something with it. And, and it's kind of funny to your point, Tom, about the, customer always being right as well you know i've worked with manufacturers distributors and almost every time there there's always somebody that raises their hand and says you know i don't know if we have a great flow for this sometimes stuff just shows up sometimes there's paperwork with it sometimes they're not we open it we try to figure out what it is and and that kind of opens up a conversation to to start tying that real world of of what this whole return disposition process looks like what we need to do with the inventory are we going to rework it are we going to scrap it can we resell it and and mirroring that to what your actual ERP process looks like as well. Because cause frankly, that's something too I've found over the years that a lot of times to really create a whole flow so to speak of, of the reverse process it's a lot of times marrying a lot of different pieces of the of the system together and and sometimes systems don't always do those in a eloquent way so you know you got to look at okay that return's coming in so did we authorize this do we have a rma associated with this okay next step how are we going to review this how are we going to disposition this who who is that gatekeeper, you know, and what's their role in all of this as well. And then understanding, okay, well then how does this flow back into our manufacturing flow? How does this fit into our quality process as well? So as things come back, you know, and if there is an issue with it, is this going to, you know, is this going to initiate something on the quality side to say, okay, well, we now have other materials that maybe we need to take a look at because this came back in. And then even kind of taking it to the next step, sometimes you're, like the middleman or a cog in this bigger, um, you know, reverse logistics process where you're receiving something from your customer, then you need to turn around, especially if you're in the distribution side. And okay, well, now we need to issue and we need to get a return from our vendor to send this back to our vendor to to see, ultimately, are we going to issue credit? Do we need to disposition this in a in a certain way and that's that's where it becomes much more complex than kind of the normal supply chain because now you're talking about interacting with your um, your customer internally and then turning around and interacting, you know, with your vendor as well, and kind of creating this whole full circle um, of, of paperwork and, and really transactions. And sometimes that becomes a big challenge. And obviously, as, as both um, Chris and Tom pointed out too, there's a big financial impact with that as well. And And again, it's a a spot where a lot of organizations can really kind of optimize and and look to do better because unfortunately that becomes kind of a big black hole in a lot of cases and there's just a corner of the, the warehouse and you know, stuff's thrown in there and, well, we're waiting on a response for the vendor. We did the RTV and haven't heard back or I don't know, maybe issue credit for that or who knows. And and it becomes a, a big dollar amount that you just kind of gets lost in the shuffle, so to speak. Now, obviously, as you get into a lot of times large organizations, that's a, a lot more standardized process. There's a lot more control around that. There's a lot more rules around that. But specifically, you know, when it's not something that happens all the time, Scenario area where you can be losing money and, and not really um, not really realize it, per se.
2: Okay, some amazing thoughts there. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I We want to touch on this comment from Enders, uh, Dave. And I am not sure uh, if I follow this or agree with this. So I'm actually going to read this <laughs> and then probably you can uh, share your opinion. So here Enders is saying, like so many things, the scale has a big effect. Huge companies will only be getting returns from medium-sized companies. Not too sure about that. I don't know what... He... And Enders, if you want to clarify your comment, um, you know, we'll be happy to address that. And maybe Dave has uh, something to add there. And he's saying, which means it will be coming from a place that has some process itself. Not sure if I follow. Dave, do you have any thoughts there by the any yeah,
0: chance? Yeah, I, I may paraphrase it a little bit. And, and hopefully I'm understanding the the question there, but you know, it it may be too, where kind of, Going back to how the whole return gets uh, initiated, um, you know, we've worked with some customers that that their customer is a very large, you know, organization, um, you know, huge global, and they're they're a smaller company, so they don't necessarily get requests for, hey, can we get an RMA issued for this? Kind of going back to the stuff just shows up on the on the dock kind of thing. They get more notified that, hey, we're sending this back. Here's, um, you know, what our original PO number was. Um, so there's not necessarily a request associated with it. So I'm not sure if exactly that's kind of the, the direction that, that that comment was going there. Um, but, you know, sometimes you don't, as an organization, have full control even over, you know, what's going to be, um, you know, what's going to be coming in and, and how that's going to be initiated.
2: Okay, so my understanding of this comment is I think what he is trying to say is that if you are a larger company, then you are going to be dealing with the departments, meaning they are going to have slightly more formalized process. And again, I'm still not too sure if I follow uh, Dave, uh, Yeah.
0: Maybe more, yeah, like if you're in a B2B type of scenario and, and you know, when you're in that, like um, some of Tom's examples there um, as well, so large organization, large, large organization, there's going to be specific departments for that and not necessarily just a, a person who handles that as part of their, you know, it's it's 1% of their overall job duties is that's that's kind of how i'm understanding it there so size and structure of organization does come into play with kind of how this whole process is going to be organized and, and managed is is kind of how i'm understanding that and, and that's true you know
2: okay amazing thank you so much uh dave for that so chris i'm actually coming to you and uh you know i don't know if you are going to have any sort of insights uh based on this comment which is slightly more okay if you are going to have slightly bigger departments that are going to be dealing with your Uh, return uh, process or going to be touching then i don't know if the processes are going to vary Uh, then obviously you can touch on any of the comments that have been made so far if you are going to have any other comments there so chris do you want
3: to go Sure, sure. First comment is a cost of a pallet is between 35 and 55 bucks. So, Tom, your little scenario in Europe there, imagine thirty-three to $50,000 a day in pallets out on the 20 days in a month. It's a million bucks in pallets. So the, the interest in recovery and recycling is a big deal there. And, yeah, there is a loop to repair them as they come in the door. But in the context of the individual return versus uh, an organizational return, Different, different mass is really what we're dealing with. You know, as an individual, I bought something, I'm sending one piece back. As an organization, I'm sending you back a tractor trailer load of stuff. So it could be different scale as we look at it. Maybe that's what Anders is talking about based on the size of the transactions. It's a B2B relationship versus a B2C. That's going to be my separation. B2C right i'm dealing with you know whether it's an ecom based one or it's a you know a direct sell from a company to an end user but i think in the corporate world where we get larger and again are these stock returns is this you know where we're staging you know in the core exchanges for example if i'm buying those brakes from a manufacturer i may not i'm sure my customer's not doing the rebuilds but he's the guy that's that's accumulating and staging and so his return to the guy with the rebuilds, it's a tractor trailer load. So we're dealing with different scale though. And I think that's probably the comment there. But as you look at the complexities of doing a tractor trailer load type return, which, you know, I've got an e-com distributor that's all drop ship, but all the returns are coming to their warehouse, which means they either turn, they put them in stock and they sell them. Or again, in their context, they're doing a bulk return to their vendor. It's a whole different type of an RMA process where, again, I'm accumulating enough to get a shipment. No different with the customer where I'm going to go fetch a tractor trailer load of pallets and I'm not going to go get one. I'm not going to go get one pallet. I'm going to go get, you know, a million dollars worth of pallets or $50,000 worth of pallets. So I don't think people rationalize the value of that, but I think there's some scale there. But also is the complexities as you think about on the receiving side, you know, organizations doing returns and and processing that. You're right. These are extensions of warehouse management systems where, you know, it doesn't get put away right away. It's no different than receiving a PO where it goes in, it goes into a, a quarantine or a quality for inspection returns. There's a return site, typically a virtual warehouse inside the warehouse where there's an inspection process. OK, so maybe that speaks to the scale comment. Um, another comment I wanted to make that carry over from Chris last week we haven't talked about, it, it's the analysis of what's going on in the business. And again, as you look at mitigation of returns, of just return processes. So there's a, a whole set of complexities there we didn't talk about where The capture of reason codes, right? Hey, rebuilds, core exchanges, no big deal. If I'm dealing with customer returns, again, whether it's a B2C model, the analysis of reason returns is imperative because if I'm manufacturing, quality needs to be in the loop. We may be able to mitigate returns by making a change in engineering, for example. Maybe there's a vendor. So the analytics light up that, hey, you got one vendor that this guy is 80% crap. All the returns that come from one guy. Maybe we need to find a new vendor. So the decision-making around managing returns process and reverse loads imperative, we hadn't talked about the analytics. And the other complexity that I'll just throw back out there is in the B2C is the credit to the customers. In a corporate world, right, it's different. I'm AP, I'm AR. We're not, I'm not issuing credit on your credit card. I'm booking, I'm moving tractor trailer loads, right? It's a whole different set of accounting practices being booked in these back-end systems. But in the little B2C, the guy sends his pairs of shoes back, drop ship. Great. The complexities of that. Okay, where did he send the shoes? Did they go back to the manufacturer because they were drop ship? It all depends on how I create the shipping label. But maybe he ships them back. And typically in a drop ship, you'd love it. Ship it back to the guy that shipped it from you. But when do I give the credit to the customer? Do I give the credit right away? Am I waiting? And we talked about this last week Is there's a complexities and reconciliations between the return to the vendor, the return to the customer, right? If I'm bringing the product back into my warehouse, great. I have the tangible asset. It goes into balance sheet inventory we're issuing the credit, right? I have like like exchange for the money I give him back and I got the product. But in the drop ship world, where we're typically gonna extend credit immediately, okay, it gets complex, right? And, uh, and again, there's some advanced, we talked about analytics, but even the analytics on reconciliations, if I'm dealing with a B2C scenario with a drop ship vendor, just adds the complexity. And again, we lose money, we give credit, we never get credit. Well, that's a problem. And again, I'll tell you right now, most systems, disconnected. They're not going to do a great job of, of that reconciliation being drop ship returns to the manufacturer and, and credits to the customer. It's their disconnected processes. And I tell you, that's an area where you lose money. And if, if people don't focus on it, they'll lose money. Yeah. Hopefully your margins are good enough to absorb that. So just a few more perspectives. So so very
2: interesting perspective there. And by the way, obviously, we can see that this process is really complex. And one of the things that we have not spoken so far, that is going to increase the complexity even greater, which is going to be your lot number, serial number, warranty process. You know. So in your example, Chris, when you are talking sure. about this bulk transfer when you your dropshipper is going to be sending, you know, the shipments, and then you are probably going to get it in your warehouse. And now, let's say you have the lot numbers and serial numbers. Yeah, okay, so, complexities.
3: <laughs> so... Yeah, you're right. And as you move into products like that, and there's going to be the trinkets and trash, we'll throw it away and I'll give you credit. Okay, we start at the extreme end where the shipping cost, the product's worth less than the shipping cost to bring it back. Or it's a food perishable, destroy it, we'll give you credit. As you move up into more sophisticated projects, you know, products, equipment, serialized, lot tracked. Okay, the lot tracking is going to be perishables. So, and I think that, you know, if you think about the point of RMA issue, that's really if we're dealing with those types of products, the RMA system that issues the RMA has got to capture. Oh, And again, is a lot number relevant, foods, perishables, but in the equipment, it's a serial number. What do you have? And again, as we move up into that class of products, the value goes up and certainly what's the RMA system doing? Well, maybe backside, maybe say, hey, we'll we'll get you set up, ship it back, but behind the scenes, it's taking that serial number, it's looking at warranty, it's looking at seller warranty, vendor warranty, because when it hits my dock, the question is, what am I going to do with it, right? I gave him the credit. I got this piece of equipment back. Now, if I'm the manufacturer, right, it's a refurb or repair. Can I resell it? The, the, you know, the company is really going to try to take advantage of the value of that piece of equipment and repair it so it can go back into inventory, be resold, and we don't take a total loss on the product. Again, in the in the vendor warranty, right, we have to substantiate. Is it in warranty? And again, then we get into these lead time offsets where, hey, he made it here, but he didn't ship it for three months. The warranty expired in nine months. And but is it, and so, the, again, the complexities that even warranty fulfillment and getting the vendor to recognize warranty and issue credit. So, again, a lot of with this credits and warranties and you get it. And again, so some of it should be front end validation when the customer tries to request the RMA. Is it returnable? Is it under warranty? It's junk. There's no rep- There's no return policy on it because of AAA. Keep it. We, and again, but if we accept it, again, the back end process and following the real tracking and trace, again, all around warranty and can I get my money, right? Because in the end. You don't want to lose money on returns. People are losing money on returns. They need to they need to do the math on how much. be surprised.
2: Okay, amazing. Thank you so much uh Chris for that. So Tom, I know you already have your notes done uh and we already have too many perspectives here that we need to discuss. I don't want to increase the complexity. I mean, I have one more topic that I want to throw in here because I don't think we have spoken about that, uh, but do you want to cover whatever uh, you know you have so far? Yeah, I I held back on
4: a few items since I didn't want to talk for half an hour uh At the beginning, but uh, um, you know, Chris actually touched on this uh, topic of mitigation, right? Um, I think most of us would agree that reverse logistics is a necessary evil. It's not something that we really want to do, but it's something that we need to do if we're going to maintain a good customer relationship. um, If we're going to not get sued, uh, there might be a number of different reasons why um, it's important to have a reverse logistics process. However, um, as a necessary evil, um, it's also something that you'd like to minimize. And and Chris touched on the idea of, hey, maybe you have a a product that you're you're selling, and whether it's a component or it's the entire finished good that you're you're shipping to end customers, um, there is some kind of defect that may be specific to a particular vendor Uh, giving you those parts in the manufacturing process uh, or or giving you the whole finished item. Uh, And you you need to be looking, as Chris said, at reason codes uh, to determine whether there's a possibility of minimizing or reducing the number of returns and the volume of reverse logistic. As good as you may be at it, it's it's more profitable in all likelihood if you don't have a return than if you handle it well. Um, so you'd rather not do it at all. And um, aside from the example Chris gave, I think there are other creative ways people are trying to reduce their returns numbers and the volume of reverse logistics activity. Um, so there's been some news, I guess, in the last year. I can't remember exactly when it happened, but Walmart uh, acquired, I think it's called ZKit. Um, and, and Z-Kit is this virtual fitting room, um, and they're really trying to to tackle that 30% of uh, clothing returns. Again, some of it is customers willfully ordering more than they really need, trying things out, and shipping it back, and and that's not a mistake. That's intentional. But there are many mistakes as well, um, and uh, it may be you know a size issue. Uh, it may be um, a, a color. It may be a, a lot of different things, a style issue. And if you can virtually uh, have a fitting room online that is effective um, and and that's why Walmart bought ZKIT, um, then you have potentially a way to, if not eliminate, at least reduce the volume of returns for those unintentional reasons. Um, and, and, I had my own personal experience uh, with uh, a faucet manufacturer, Kohler, Um, and I was, uh, we were having a problem with our sink in the kitchen and I disassembled the the faucet and found the defective part and said, okay, this is what I need, this little piece right here. Um, So now I'm going to go online to Kohler and find out uh, what I need. And it probably is a risky proposition for some knucklehead like me, to be ordering a part from a list, even if there's maybe little pictures or something. Um, but Kohler went way beyond just having a list and maybe some images. Um, they actually provided the bill of materials in a visual exploding interactive way. So I was able to say, well, this is the item I bought. You know, Here's the faucet. And then let's explode it to the first level of the bomb. Okay, that that's the sub-assembly within the faucet that I just disassembled, that, that that's where the broken piece was. I can explode that. Okay, now I see the half dozen pieces that are part of that sub-assembly, and that's the one that was broken. I was amazed at how effective that was. I knew I was 100% certain I was ordering the right part, and, it, and when I got it, it was exactly right, and I, I, I repaired the faucet. And... So I looked at that and I said, that is a great example of, of minimizing the risk and, and, and the likelihood of returns because customers just take their best shot, order stuff and, you know, half the time it's wrong. Um, so it was hard for me to have gotten that wrong. So, again, I, I think um, if you view it as a necessary evil, yeah, have a good process in place whatever you need to do, whatever policies seem appropriate, try and make the customer returns experience as good as possible, but also put some thought into how the heck can you completely eliminate the need for that return or that reverse logistics experience? Um, Financially it's better. uh, And, and, and certainly the customer doesn't want to have to deal with it either. um, Not just you. So that was one thing I thought that, you know, go think about how to mitigate these things and, and it gets into, you know, the, the reverse logistics operation in some ways you know being uh, recognized as a, as a serious matter that the marketing organization maybe the uh, the customer facing uh, website and IT team can help with and so on uh, and and figure out ways to actually reduce that volume of returns so that was one thing that was on my mind and and was sparked by one of the things Chris said um, and the other thing I thought I'd just chip in um, was We've, we've talked completely up until now about returns initiated by customers. Uh, and I, I can't remember if Dave maybe mentioned this in passing, you know, that uh, there is the possibility of um, a, a seller initiated return. If you start to investigate and find you have consistent problems, or maybe it was Chris in, in some of the reason code stuff, you, you find you have some consistent problems, you may want to initiate a recall. Now that is a reverse logistics process and it can be a significant volume and if not handled well it can be extremely costly. Um so as a uh manufacturer or a seller uh one should also consider that is there a need a potential need for me to handle a recall um and if so how would I do that efficiently um, in order to both ensure my customers uh, don't have problems that make them irate with me and maybe change who they buy from? Uh, but also, even with, aside from that, how do I handle uh, a large volume of returns? Um, so uh, that's that's another aspect of reverse logistics that uh, oftentimes is neglected until uh, a crisis arrives. So amazing details there. By the way, I love the story about
2: Fawcett, to be honest, okay? And uh, one of the advice that, you know, uh, you are going to have, especially in the IT community, Tom, uh, is going to be that, you know what, you never want to give ideas to your business counterparts. Otherwise, you know how that goes, right? They are going to come back to you and they are going to ask you how to solve this. So now you gave me a very interesting idea of the visual bomb from the customer experience perspective. So mm-hmm. I know some platforms out there that are really good at that. And to be honest, I me mean, see, even mm-hmm. if I look at a platform such as sap hybrids or uh, you know many others they don't do as good a job the way you are describing at this point of time which is really visual bomb from the consumer perspective as well as also from the b2b perspective mm-hmm. uh, you know chris mentioned christina harrington uh, from Gen alpha she's doing amazing job you know that's her product actually okay so that's what they do from the product perspective it's all about visual bomb so from your perspective uh, i don't know whether you could find you know what platform or the technology they were using to enable this experience. Uh, but do you have any thoughts there in terms of any products uh, or the solutions that you have seen to enable that experience Tom?
4: Uh, well, actually, yes. Um, uh, yeah, and I don't think this is what what Culler was using, but um, uh, during my time, uh, my 15 years at Varian, um, uh, we leveraged a, an SAP tool. It was integrated with SAP called Right Hemisphere. It was an acquisition that, uh, that SAP made many years ago um, and it enabled the uh, translation of a, uh, a, a manufacturing bomb into a visual experience. Um, it created a, a um, I forget what the file type was, but it created a, uh, a, a, an executable where you could um, explode the, the, the bomb um, interactively. Um, it was used uh, and is used today within Invariant uh, for customer education, for field service engineer training. Um, it's used now in um, even uh, handbooks and training materials um, to minimize the amount of um, uh, language dependence that you have often with training and, uh, and manuals. So, um, so yeah, no, that that was a that was is a, a great product, and uh, it's being used at Varian, probably a lot of. I'm using in
2: there. Thank you so much, Tom, for that. So, Dave, I'm actually coming to you, and I don't know if you have your notes ready as
0: well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> for, want- for, not as comprehensive, but. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Go, go ahead, Dave. Awesome. Yeah. I'll I'll just make a few points. You know, I, I think everyone has done a great job of kind of covering the, the gamut here. Um, going back to a couple of things Tom said there really about policies and procedures. That, that is really important because actually years ago I had a had a customer that kind of towards the end of the year, if they needed to shed some inventory, if they were carrying too much and they had overordered, they would literally go through some of the raw materials and just and just try to send it all back, you know, to, to where they had bought it from. Nothing wrong with it, anything like that. They had just messed up in forecasting. So that's where, you know, trying to mitigate these things on the front end can be a, you know, really important because you want to have policies and procedures in place to try to eliminate as much of, of the returns as possible. And on the consumer side, like the Walmart example there as well, you know, anything you can do to try to kind of mitigate that and, and make that a little, you know, less frequent is is going to be a really good thing to do and try to bring that dollar value um down because it, it is a big concern and it is a you know really big issue and a, a big area for for a lot of folks there okay very
2: interesting layer there so i'm actually going to have one question for you uh you know and that is going to be related to a very specific industry and i am looking to see how you are going to approach or what you have seen mm-hmm. uh in in your industries where you wherever you are Uh, you know, doing uh, your engagements. So this is a very specific problem in the electrical distribution. And I can almost guarantee that that is probably going to be very applicable uh, in some of the other industries, such as medical device, oil and gas. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what they do is, uh, you know, typically you have the RMA process, you have the return process, but in their case, they are also buying used parts. Okay. Okay. And the way used parts work is they are literally buying junk. Okay, and they they they, they are ripping it apart, and they are trying to create parts from that. They are trying to create some sort of value uh, and create a product using those. So now, let's say if you are working in this industry, obviously there is going to be a little bit of inbound shipment there from junkyard. Uh, You know, I don't know if that is going to be (laughs) automotive (laughs) space as well. Uh, Right. So so you have that, but then you have the part creation process, and then after that you have the quality process, and then product creation, and then you have to ship that as well so have you seen anything similar over
0: approach it? Um, same things a little bit similar not that exact scenario but you know that that offers some challenges um, especially from an inventory perspective because you have to bring that in and yeah. almost disassemble it even though it's not really something that you know can be disassembled so uh, you know I've seen that kind of handled in a similar situation where you kind of bring it in as as one part and then do those dispositions and kind of issue it out into other parts um, it, it's pretty complex and in, in managing that so that can be a, a tough thing to do and it's um you know kind of another aspect of of the complexity in that so i probably don't have a great answer for that other than it's a challenge and and you know something that you kind of have to work through and you're you're going to really be doing a lot with order side and making sure you're issuing and allocating the parts and pieces um appropriately there
2: Okay. Amazing. Thank you so much, Dave, for that. So right now, the only thing we can take is probably going to be closing advice uh, and any sort of long comments that you might have. Chris, we have four minutes.
3: We have three people. So please go. Sure. So, you know, that that prior example, I've got a client that buys junk jets. They buy aircraft. And so that is a great one where they bring in a, a full full fuselage of a, of a jet. And then to your point, they decompose it. And it's very interesting to go back to lots where that is booked as a lot and it's costed. And then it's decomposed. And to that point, those parts turn into raw materials on work orders refurb. And in this context, they go through an FAA certification product to make sure the parts can go into stock and end up on an aircraft going out the door. It is a very complex process. And again, the certification authorization around that adds a lot of complexity in that space. So, um, but again, as as you think about reverse logistics and uh, Again, we 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 didn't talk a lot about customer service imperative that you focus on what's the customer experience in doing this, whether it's a, a B2C or a B2B experience. And, and the other part I'll emphasize is do the analytics. Make sure you're really analyzing the data so that you've got your feedback loop. Don't just assume it. You need that feedback loop. And I think one comment I'll just address is the apparel. You know, with COVID and everything else, people do that. They'll buy four or five sizes, try it on, and send 80% of it back. So I can see why. Apparel returns from an industry perspective have grown dramatically because that's what people do. They're not going to shops. They order lots of stuff. Try it on. They're sending 80% of it back. But, uh, But again, focus on the process. Focus on the analytics. And again, for the apparel, what do you do? Do you have better sizing charts on the website so they buy better? There's an example like Thompson. is. how do you do mitigation? You may think about... Why is a customer buying so much? They may not know what size works. So there's a lot of different examples, but that's really what you want to do. You want to crush down returns as much as possible.
2: Thank you so much, Chris, for that. So Tom, closing comments, closing advice. Yeah, I really would echo a
4: lot of what Chris just said. Um, uh, My opening remarks were around modeling and understanding the process and the financial implications. I think I would reiterate that in closing, that you really need to define the process and understand the financials. And I would add uh, something I didn't say at the beginning that Chris just added, which is understand also the customer experience input for the processes that you are trying to establish. Um, so, uh, it is a potential competitive advantage, uh, and you certainly want to be at least as good as your peers, if not better in how you handle this. Um, I, uh, It's not exactly the same thing, but I always remember from my days at GE, and I don't know if I've shared this with you before, Sam. Uh, I don't think Chris or Dave would have heard this, but um, it was it was at least folklore within GE that uh, GE customers were more loyal than Maytag customers. Maytag never broke and never needed to be repaired. And GE was notorious. Maybe notorious is the wrong word, but GE had its service issues. Things broke. But GE was incredibly good at and fast at repairing their equipment out in the field at customers' homes. And when measured by industry independence, um, customer loyalty for GE was higher than Maytag. And when they, they correlated it to customer experience, those loyal customers had breakdowns, but had quick and very satisfactory repairs. And I kind of liken that to the returns process, right? Like if you, if you get something and it's damaged or if you get something and it's somehow not what you really wanted and you, have to, uh, you feel you have to return it, if it's a complete pain in the ass, that's going to be a very negative piece of your customer experience. But if that's smooth and easy, even though there, were, there was an issue, I think it really uh, takes a lot of the worry out of the whole buying process to the point where you're even more comfortable, just like the GE customers were even more comfortable repurchasing GE because they knew if it broke. But people who bought Maytag, it never breaks. But if it does, I, I don't know exactly what's going to happen. And, and ironically, right, you, you, you could turn that into a competitive advantage as in the case of GE. So anyway, um, I think model, understand financials and also understand customer experience. Could not agree more. Thank you so much, Tom, for that. Dave, uh, closing advice, please. All right.
0: Well, my GE dishwasher went out the other day, so we're going to put that to the uh, to the test. So I want I want I to vouch
4: that was that was for now. some time ago. That those
0: stories. Well, so I don't know, Dave. We'll, we'll find out. But um, yeah. yeah you know. uh, I'll just I'll, I'll triplicate basically what um, what Chris and Tom said. It it comes down to process, process and process with this piece. Um, B2C, it's super important. Experience has to be good. And even B2B from a financial standpoint, managing that, it's got to be solid. Um, and it's something that's so often overlooked. So, you know, make sure you're paying attention to it.
2: All right, amazing points, guys. That's a wrap. If you joined for the first time, this was part of our digital transformation series for which we meet uh, every Thursday at 5.30 p.m. uh, Eastern and we pick one topic related to digital transformation. So make sure you guys are going to be here next week. We are going to come back. Uh, On that note, thanks everyone for your time and insight tonight. Thank you. Awesome. Take 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 care. guys. I cannot thank our guests enough for coming on the show, for sharing their knowledge and journey. I always pick up learnings from our guests and hopefully you learned Something new today. If you want to learn more about Chris Garadini, head over to turnkeytech.com. It's dot C.com. If you want to learn more about David Dozer, head over to blazeitweb.com. It's B L A Z E I T W E B.com. If you want to learn more about Tom Rodden, follow and connect with him on LinkedIn. Links and more information will also be available in the show notes. If anything in this podcast resonated with you and your business, you might want to check other related episodes, including the interview with Phil Kramer, who shares his insights into integrated supply chain planning and why companies need to have integrated strategy for their supply chain. Also the interview with Rick Watson, who shares how to plan for warehouse and logistics architecture for DTC brands selling through marketplaces.